You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Last couple weeks, and uh, we will actually end it next week. We're going to divide this last chapter into two parts, because uh, there's just too much to say in one week. So uh, we're going to do the first part of chapter four. But while you're finding that, I just want to briefly mention a couple of things going on in the life of the church uh, to make you aware of or remind you of. Uh, one is that we have our uh, annual picnic coming up. That's going to be September the 8th. Uh, so that's several weeks from now. But we would like to start to know who could help us out with the manpower and woman power to pull it off. Anything from uh, setting up in the morning to tearing down after uh, people leave in the afternoon to cooking food to running bouncy houses and making sure kids don't break their legs, things like that. There's a lot of things that need to get done. And so if you'd be interested in helping, there's many ways, and you can indicate that by signing up out at the Welcome Center this morning. I would encourage you to do that. And also wanted to just remind you of a conference we're hosting here, a one-day conference, September 21st, called Gospel Shaped Family. Uh, It's going to be from 9 to 345 or so that day. Uh, And it's designed to help us grow in our ministry, in our family's current or future, our ability to help others and their families to make sure we're seeing it from a biblical perspective and thinking practically about how to live out uh, the the responsibilities that God has given to us within the family. So there's speakers coming from all over the country. There's details online at their website. You can register there as well. But I would encourage you to, to check that out, to go ahead and sign up for that. So, have you found Ruth chapter 4? We're going to read part of this here in just a moment. Um, but while I was uh, reading this text this week, and you'll see why I hear as we read it in a minute, uh, the idea of engagement and marriage kept coming to mind. This is really on the surface of this story. And there's a, a quote that I was reminded of from the movie When Harry Met Sally. And Billy Crystal, one of the characters uh, in the movie, said this. And I think I even have the quote up on the screen. Uh, he said this to Meg Ryan's character. He said, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And the, maybe the romantics among us or people who have, have lived that out before can resonate with that sentiment. If we are married or have been married, uh, we can probably look back on a period of our time where we start to realize this man or this woman is who I want to spend the rest of my life with. And often that can move us to be in a hurry to see that begin, to see uh, marriage start, to see uh, our happily ever after begin. Uh, and I, my wife and I, we were engaged a long time. I don't necessarily recommend that, probably like 20 months, something like that, but that did not mean I did. I wanted life to begin with her. There were just things that we uh, were wanting to, to accomplish and our families wanted us to consider as we were about to get married. But many of you have lived through that. You've experienced what Billy Crystal's character was saying, that you just want to get on with it. You want the marriage to start. And I think uh, these ancient characters of Boaz and Ruth could have said very similar things uh, thousands of years ago. They could have said a similar thing, that God had brought their paths together providentially he had arranged for them to meet one another and they had started to develop this relationship and this admiration for each other and they wanted their rest of their life it seems to begin as soon as possible and so these we're going to read 12 verses this morning that's we're going to get through about half this chapter and we're going to see this is really in this short story this is the shorter record of their what we might call engagement 
period. And it's very short. It's very rapid, like maybe one day long type of engagement if you think yours were short. Uh, but they're wanting the rest of their life to start together. And uh, we're going to watch how they went about this, how they moved from knowing that they wanted to be together to actually clearing obstacles and actually publicly professing this and moving things along. But I wanted you to know that the background of this, if you haven't been with us before we read this, so you kind of know where we are. You're not just dropped randomly into the story. So this story, uh, and I'd encourage you to read it sometime. It does not take long to, but if you, if you haven't heard it before, to read it. Uh, but essentially, there was this family in Israel, actually in the town of Bethlehem, that Jesus would eventually be born in. Uh, and the, the head of that family, the, the dad, uh, his name was Elimelech. And he had led his family to leave, actually, Israel, leave Bethlehem uh, because of famine. And him and his wife, Naomi, uh, had moved with their two sons, and they moved to the country of Moab, uh, this foreign nation that God had warned them about, but they moved there. And their two sons had married Moabite wives, uh, foreign wives. And God in his providence, we don't know exactly why, but it had all of those males die. So Elimelech and the two sons died, and so there was left these three women. There was Naomi and then Ruth and Orpah, and Naomi decided to go back. Bethlehem. She said, we need to go back. Like, we, we can't sustain life here. We need to go back. One of those uh, daughters-in-law ended up returning to her home. Uh, but Ruth, it seems like, was converted to worship the God of Israel and, and went back with Naomi to Bethlehem. And in God's providence, uh, this young widow met this man Boaz, this worthy man, this noble man, this man of valor, he was called. And she had worked in his fields. He had allowed her to work there and had started to welcome her into his workforce and even into to his family in some ways. And we saw last week in chapter 3 this unusual proposal even where Ruth had come to, to Boaz at night as he rested and uh, through a series of events had essentially proposed to him and said, I would, I would love for you uh, to cover me, like to, to, to take me as your wife, to, to be my husband. And Boaz had said that he would be glad to. Uh, but there were some obstacles that needed to be dealt with. There was a redeemer, they called it, in their culture who had a responsibility or a right uh, to take care of Ruth, to take care of Naomi, to take care of their property. And Boaz knew in their culture there was one man who had a, a closer right, like a, a first right uh, to this. And so we're going to see him deal with urgency now to, to clarify that, to see if this man wants to take that responsibility and that right, or if he will not, then Boaz is going to be glad to do it. So we're going to see that they're moving quickly to marriage, but we're going to see throughout this story that they, uh, they're hurry, their, their quickness to it, did not keep them from taking steps that were proper and steps that were public. Those are the things we're going to see as they go to the gate of, of Bethlehem, but they took steps that were proper and public. So I'm going to read the first six verses, follow along with me, and uh, we'll pause there, and then I'll, I'll share some of how they went about this, and we'll read the rest of it. So Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 are recorded like this for us. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I want to hit pause there for a moment, just make sure we're understanding what's going on, because it's kind of a foreign context to us. It may feel really confusing to us. So I want to clarify a little bit. And I, I want you to see how Boaz, as he is seeking to, to move toward marriage, he's seeking to take steps toward actually becoming husband and wife with Ruth. He, he deals with these things publicly, and he deals with them properly. Uh, you can see that he's wanting to deal with this publicly, first because he goes to the gate of Bethlehem. Did you know that? That's how the story starts. He, he goes to the gate. We don't have gates in our cities and towns, at least that I'm aware of. But in the ancient world, this would have been the place where everybody would come and go to the city. Uh, that many people would live in the city, then they would go out to the fields to work in the day, and they would come back. And so it was this hub at which things would be sold. It was this hub that people would come and go through at multiple points through the day, especially in the morning, which is when this seems to take place. And it was the place where business affairs would be taken care of, where legal judgments would be made, kind of like their little ancient courthouse in miniature form. It's where things would be talked about and processed and witnessed. So that's where Boaz goes. He wants to deal with this publicly. He wants it to be seen and known what is about to take place. But he deals with it properly, too. Do you notice when he got there, he first grabs this guy uh, who is this closer redeemer, this person who would have had the first right or responsibility to take care of this family and to take care of these widows and their fields and their possessions. He sees him and he pulls him aside. And we don't even know this guy's name, uh, but he pulls him aside. He wants to deal directly with this guy. He wants to talk to him and reason with him and level with him. But then Boaz also, it's not just him and this one guy doing some side room deal on him pressuring him or manipulating him. He, he gathers ten of the elders of the city, verse 2 says. So there, there would have been these people who had places of prominence in the town. And when deals would be made and, and decisions would be made, they would often witness these. They would be the, the witnesses who could confirm, yes, so-and-so said this and so-and-so said this. And Boaz agreed to this. And so, so Boaz is grabbing these people. He wants their eyeballs. He wants their input. He wants their voices as this whole situation gets dealt with. And we see that Boaz is seeking to be proper. He's seeking to be above board because as the story progresses, I want you to think about this. Boaz actually presents the right of redemption to this other man. He, he, he has already made it clear to Ruth in Ruth chapter 3 that he wants to be her husband. That he wants to take care of her. He wants to seek to perpetuate the name of her, her former husband who had passed away. He wants to do this. He, he longs to do this. But he presents this right very publicly with others around. Presents this right of redemption to this other man and says, you're the first in line, so to speak. You're, you're the one who has this responsibility first. I, I want you to have this opportunity to take this land that Elimelech, the patriarch, had left. And, and he, he presents it to him first with the potential of losing it himself. 
this, this relationship that he longs for, that, that he has had the, this desire for, like uh, Billy Crystal's character. He wants the rest of his, of his life with Ruth to start today, but he knows there's this obstacle. There's this person that has a first responsibility. And if you notice this, so he says, like, if you'll redeem it, redeem it, but if not, tell me, because uh, there's nobody other than you, and I come after you. And then at the end of verse 4, if you have not read this story before, many of us are familiar with it, but you read the end of verse 4 and you're like, oh, no. Because this guy, this other redeemer we don't even know is like, I'll redeem it. Like he, he steps forward and he's like, I'll take the responsibility. I'll, I, I will take care of Elimelech and the land uh, that he left. And it's kind of like a gasp when you read this. Um, no, this is not right. This isn't what's supposed to happen. Like she's supposed to end up with Boaz. And I was trying to think of an example. And this may be sacrilegious, but I was thinking of the movie Shrek. If some of you have seen Shrek, if not, just bear with me for a second. Uh, there's these two characters, these two ogres, Shrek and Fiona. And everything is bending in the story like you want them to be together and to be married. But through this series of events and misunderstandings, there's this part in the story where for a moment or for a little while you think she's going to marry this little guy named Lord Farquaad and and you're like no this cannot be like this is she's supposed to be with Shrek and ultimately the story bends in such a way where she actually does marry Shrek so this is like a moment like that in verse 4 like no this is not who is supposed to marry Ruth it's supposed to be Boaz and so Boaz obviously wants it to be Boaz as well. So he he clarifies now, and we don't know if he did this on purpose, like stringing him along or something, but he, he clarifies and says, oh, it's not just land that you get. It's not just this parcel of land that, yeah, you'll have to use some workers and, and designate some funds to grow things and care for the crops and, and to, to pay workers, things like that. But also in Elimelech's family that you would take responsibility for, there is this young woman, Ruth, this widow, this, this Moabite. He, he notes that there, this Moabite widow, this foreigner who's come to, to live among us. And we're not exactly sure why. Uh, we're not told all the details, but this man quickly changes his tune in verse 6. Uh, when he starts to realize, like, oh, I might need to, to, to have her, I would need to have her as my wife and seek to bear children to, to pass on the name of Malon, her husband, and Elimelech, her father-in-law, uh, he gets scared off because maybe it seems like he's imagining more descendants means spreading thinner my inheritance and, and I already have children uh, and if I have more, it'll just spread it thinner. And so he kind of backs off of it and is wanting to look out for his own but this is where we, we see him turn over this right of redemption. He, he says in verse 6, Take my right of redemption yourself, Boaz, for I cannot redeem it. And so this opportunity now comes to Boaz, the, this man who had the first right, the first responsibility to redeem Ruth, to, to take charge of, of this family and take care of this family and seek to perpetuate it. He passes on it, and he tells Boaz, you do it. Now we get to read whether he does it or not. And surprise, he does. He, he takes responsibility for it. But read with me verses 7 to 12. And we'll see how Boaz continues. This process continues being public. And it continues being proper as they move towards marriage. So verse 7 continues like this. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel. Concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. 
and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those were their two sons that died. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I can see him saying this with joy, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And next week, we'll get to read about those offspring that, that come about. Uh, they have some very famous uh, descendants that come for their family, not least of which is Jesus. Uh, but we'll get to read about that uh, next Sunday. But what happens here at this gate, now that this right of redemption has been transferred, it's been given to Boaz, we see uh, that they follow the customs of their day. We don't know when this was written, but verse 7 implies that it was at least written a bit later to try to help people that were reading it then and us now say, hey, remember back then there used to be this custom of how they would make transactions, how they would symbolize these. And the author is wanting us as readers to know what in the world is going on with this sandal thing and why were they doing this at the gate. But essentially what happens is as a way to show the onlookers, show these elders, and it seems like there's this crowd, there's these others that are referenced who are watching as a way to confirm what is actually taking place, to visually symbolize it. The, the one would take off his sandal, which is probably pretty nasty, would take off his sandal and he would give it to the other as a, as a symbol of I'm taking this right or this responsibility that should be mine or could be mine and I'm giving it to you. And so he handed this nasty, probably funky sandal uh, to Boaz. But I think Boaz would have taken that as his most treasured gift he probably had ever received. Because it symbolized him, now I can take care of this family. Like now I can provide for Naomi. Now I can have Ruth be my wife. Like we can, we can have a family together. We can have children together. We, we can, we can uh, minister together. But I wanted to know for you, these men are following the custom of their day. They're not just doing it how they wanted. They're following the custom of their day of how, how decisions would be made, how they would be processed publicly with this sandal removal and extending it. And Boaz, he is taking this right now. When that sandal is given to him, he's glad to assert this right and say, I am glad to, to become uh, the redeemer of this family. I'm glad to become the husband of Ruth. He, he asserts this right. And there's this language in here of, of buying, like verse 10, for example, or verse 9, uh, talk about him buying the land. Uh, that, in a sense, I doubt that he was actually giving, uh, giving Naomi money in this deal. It was this sense of like taking ownership, the sense of taking responsibility for this parcel of land, and then taking responsibility for the family members that existed, uh, Naomi and Ruth. I don't think he's actually paying them money. He's already been very generous 
to them, but he was taking on responsibility. It's this ongoing cost that was going to come to him of these fields that were now his and these people that were now his, potential children that would now be his. There was this ongoing cost. So in that sense, he's buying them. He, he, he's taking care of them. He's taking responsibility even economically for them. And Boaz is seeking to do this above board. Notice he, he starts this uh, conversation with the crowd. He starts and ends it in verse 9 and then in verse 10 by saying, you are witnesses. He, he wants it to be seen. He wants it to be known by people. He, he's not just doing something, some deal with Ruth and Naomi and then signing contracts. And he's not just doing some side deal with this Mr. So-and-so guy who we don't even know, the first redeemer. He's wanting it to be public, to be seen, to be witnessed. The, that's why these elders would have gathered is so that in time, if there was challenge and say, ah, this guy comes back and says, actually, that land was supposed to be belong to me. There was now witnesses who could confirm, no, like you gave your sandal to him. We saw you do it. He asserted this right. Like it, it is a done deal. Like they are husband and wife now. And then these people, it, it's public because they offer this beautiful, I think, communal blessing of them. In verse 11, that he's saying, you guys are, Boaz tells them, you're witnesses. And they say, yes, we are. Like, we are witnesses. And they, they speak these blessings over this soon-to-be couple uh, of God's favor upon them, uh, of his blessing of children and descendants to come to them. And so it's public in that sense as well. Not just to be seen in a business transaction or formal legal matters, but it's to be communally celebrated as well. To be publicly celebrated and affirmed as well. So we see that these steps they're taking really quickly, even that very morning after um, uh, Boaz had agreed to marry her. We see that they're taking these steps quickly, but they're doing it properly and they're doing it publicly. They're taking these steps publicly and properly. I want to take a few minutes and think about what we can learn about taking steps towards marriage in our culture today. We live in a far different time. We live in a far different world and culture than them. But I think there are things, those two things in particular, being public and being proper, that we can learn from as we approach marriage or as we help people who are approaching marriage. And I would say this this way, that steps towards marriage should be taken publicly, not just privately. And they should be taken properly, not just passionately. They should be taken publicly. They should be taken properly. Now, I want to note before I, I talk about this, I want to note for those who are single in the room, those who uh, are, are not married, I'm not talking about these steps as if these taking steps towards marriage are things that must be done, uh, that, that have to be done to be godly, have to be done to be a mature Christian. The Bible is crystal clear on this, that marriage is a gift. It's a wonderful gift of God that he's given to us, but it is not a mandate. It is not a requirement to be a Christian, to be a godly man or woman. And so as I'm talking about these things, I'm not saying these things as things you must do. But I'm saying these to us as God's people that when we take these steps ourselves, or if we're walking with people who are taking these steps towards marriage, these are things we should keep in mind, to do it publicly and to to do it uh, properly. And so I want to think about taking steps towards marriage publicly. Now, I, I am not one who would advocate uh, for, like, permanent chaperones on dates and things like that. Uh, when a, a couple is dating or engaged, I think there can be wisdom in having other people around, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but there, there's, even as I say that, 
steps towards marriage should be public. I'm not saying that there should never be private interactions between a man and woman as they're considering marriage. I think that can be appropriate, healthy, helpful to have time together to talk, to process, to enjoy things together. But I think by and large, steps taken towards marriage should be done in the public eye. They should be done with people around you. They should be done uh, with people watching you and helping you and you seeking out uh, their input as well. Because there's this temptation to think of romantic love and relationships that might be heading towards marriage. There's a temptation to just think of them as a private affair. That it's just between me and him. It's just between me and her. Like, we can do this how we want. We can take steps how we want towards married life. We can make decisions how we want. And I was reminded this week, as as I was reading about this public move towards marriage, uh, of a quote I read in a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And I think we have it on the screen. Uh, He said this about marriage, which I think this is so true. He said that the Enlightenment, this era several hundred years ago, it privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose as individual gratification, not any broader good, such as reflecting God's nature, producing character, or raising children, slowly but surely, this newer understanding of the meaning of marriage has displaced the older one in Western culture. And I think that's so true. When we think about marriage, and none of us have gotten to live for a few hundred years, but as we look back on history, it definitely seems true that, that romantic relationships and, and relationships between men and women increasingly have become just this private affair. Something that's just between them, that, that, that nobody can speak into, that nobody can tell them who to love or how to love, that, that they can just do what they want. But when it comes to marriage, that is, that's off the table. Like God did not intend for steps to be taken towards marriage that are just purely private, that are just self-directed even by the couple. There is wisdom in living out a relationship in community. And I want to share a few reasons of why I think it's good to take steps publicly towards marriage. One is that we benefit from other people's advice. Like when we as a couple, as we're taking steps towards marriage and considering it, moving toward it, we can benefit and need to benefit from other people's advice. A lot of times when we're in love, whether we're young or old, we just think, man, love's enough. We just got what we need. We don't need anybody's input. We don't need anybody's counsel. But we can benefit from other people's advice. We can benefit from the questions that they'll ask, from the the challenges that they'll give, that the observations that they'll make about us as an individual or about how we live as a couple, how we interact. Because as couples, and and we live through this, I think, in our relationship, we can tend to overemphasize the good in our relationship and underestimate the bad. Like we get kind of starry-eyed and we just, we inflate the things that are good and think it's better than it really is and that, that we don't really have any problems at all. It's just all good and blissful. And we can tend to underestimate the problems or the potential problems that exist between us, the, the arguments that we have, the things we talk about or don't talk about, the decisions we're starting to make. And we need other people's eyes, other people's minds, other people's experiences to help us see things better to help us see things in ourselves as a couple and as individuals that we may not see ourselves. I would say it this way, that when you have two people, four eyes and two hearts are not enough, like to have enough wisdom to proceed towards marriage. You need many other eyes. You need many other hearts. You need many other people who have God's word and can speak in uh, to your situation. So we can benefit from other people's advice when we engage publicly we can also benefit from people's accountability. 
Like when we, there's often times where we just, when we're taking steps towards marriage, we just kind of cluster together as a couple and we don't talk about the things that we're dealing with with other people. We don't want them to know the sins that we're struggling with. We don't want them to know the lust that we're struggling with or the, the, the fights that we have and the way that this guy does this or that she does this. We want to kind of hide it and put on this veneer that just looks nice and, and clean and, and pretty for everybody. But we need people in our life who know what is going on in our relationship. We need people that we can be honest with and say, this has been really hard. This has been a weak spot for us. This has been something that that we need help in dealing with because it's easy when you just spend time together and don't interact with very many others to just think, well, who's going to know or who needs to know about this? And I'm not saying that you need to tell everybody everything, but you need other people in your life to help you be accountable, to help you walk down the path that God has called you to. So we benefit from others' advice. We benefit from their accountability. But you see this even in the story. We benefit from others' affirmation as well. Uh, that, that is a blessing of God. When you're around other people who get to see you interact as a couple, and you maybe if you're married in the room and you have no uh, idea ever to be engaged again, never you'll be a widow or widower, even if you never go through this process yourself, I want you to remember that you can be a voice of affirmation to a couple that is taking steps towards marriage because we need that. When it's just us, it's very easy to think, oh, yeah, we should get married. We should take steps this way. We're, we're meant for each other. We're soulmates, whatever language we want to use. But when you start to have the blessing and affirmation of other mature Christians in your life to say, yes, we see both of you. Like, we see how you interact. We see how you are taking steps towards marriage. That is a wonderful blessing of God. It's a gift of God that can be further confirmation that we're on the right path. Uh, and if we isolate ourselves and we don't have people who see us, who, who don't affirm us, then we are missing that. You see that this is a very publicly known relationship. Um, Boaz and Ruth, it was known publicly, uh, and ours ought to be as well when we're taking steps towards marriage. So we should be, as couples who are considering marriage, we should purposefully limit, I would say, the, this may be countercultural, counterintuitive, limit the amount of time you just spend together. Sometimes we just throw all our time into spending it together as a, a man and woman who are taking steps towards marriage. And we unintentionally even cut ties with other people. But we need friends. We need people around us who can see us and help us and whose example we can watch. And not just turn and face each other and totally miss the benefit that can fr- come from God's people all around us. I'm actually grateful. Stephanie and I, we went to diff- we had a long engagement, but most of that we actually spent apart from each other, which may sound weird, but I think, and we've talked about this, that was an immense benefit to us because it made us. It, it was God's kind hand to make us keep friendships, to not just turn and have us just be each other's only friend, but to have friends that were deep and that we could talk to and that could see us and that we could see and talk with them as well. There's a lot else I could say about this. Uh, but so we, we, should live, we should take steps towards marriage that are public. But I would also say, based on this story and what we see them doing, we should take steps towards marriage that are proper as well. That we don't just get to chart our own course towards marriage. We don't just get to do our own thing however we want and have it terminate at marriage. There's a proper way to go about the pursuit of marriage. There's a proper way to take steps towards marriage married life and cultures vary tremendously on this and like american uh, culture in the 21st century has some great pros but also has some cons about how we uh, take steps <coughs> towards marriage but there's things that i think are important for us to think about because often we just 
approach, we just take steps towards marriage that I would say are driven by passion rather than by properliness, if you want to say that. That are just driven by, by love and emotion and not driven by process, not driven by what is proper and what is right. And it, when I say to, to take steps towards marriage that are proper, not just passionate, I am not at all implying that passion is not important or that it can just take a total back seat. Because when a couple is considering getting married, I think there ought to be a sense in which passion fuels them and w- which there's this motive, this compelling force within them. You see that happening in Ruth and Boaz. There's this growing uh, excitement about potentially being each other's husband and wife. They're not just coldly going, I got to go to the gate. Like I got to deal with this business transaction. That's why I said I really think he was probably stoked when that sandal is given to him. There, there's passion there. And, um, but they did it properly. And often those can feel at odds when we're just driven by emotion, we're just driven by passion to pursue a person and even marry them. We need to remember that there's a proper pathway as well, that there's a right way to go about the pursuit of marriage. I would say, and I, I, I want to think in two categories, that we need to be culturally proper, that's one thing, and we need to be biblically proper, that's even more important. Uh, but being culturally proper is important, I think. Uh, you see Ruth and Boaz doing that. All the things they did here weren't exactly prescribed in the law. Uh, this stuff about sandals, for example, and like that these weren't exactly teased out in the Bible itself of how to do these things, but they were cultural customs, like verse 7 says. But they followed them. They still went about them. They weren't anti-biblical. They were things that have been established as things that, that this culture did, and they followed those. And so we, I, I would say a couple of things. If we're going to be culturally proper as we take steps towards marriage, one would be something very simple, of, I would say, is to follow the law as you approach marriage. In Indiana, that is a super low bar to, to jump over, to be honest. I, I get to officiate marriages, and essentially what legally you have to do is you have to go to the courthouse and essentially say, uh, I am old enough to get married. I am not drunk or under the influence of drugs currently, and I am not, like, a close relative to this person. Like, that's the legal bar that you have to jump over. So at least jump over that, okay? I hope that is an assumption we can all make, that we are culturally proper in that way. But there are things in our culture that I think are good that are not biblically mandated but are still good things that I would encourage most couples, if not all couples, to do as they take steps towards marriage. And they're not in the Bible, but things like this, for example, like asking the bride's father for her hand in marriage. Show me in the Bible. That is not in the Bible, okay? There's no chapter and verse on that, but that is a good and proper thing to do. As a potential suitor of a young woman, to, to speak if the father is living, uh, to speak to him, to speak to her parents, to say, express your desires to marry their daughter. That is a good and noble thing to do that I recommend any young suitor to do. I did that with Stephanie's dad. It was a simple conversation, thankfully, because I'd known him a long time. But it's a, a proper thing to do. Things like proposing. That's not in the Bible, that you have to do that. Or having a ring, for example, that's definitely not in the Bible. But those are things, they're not mandated biblically, but there's a sense, there's a beauty in proposing marriage to a person because you are clarifying your intent. 
You're making it clear to this person what you would like to see happen. You're not just stringing them along in a relationship that just has no movement to it, that has no direction to it, but you're making your intentions and your desires clear, and they're able to reciprocate and do that. That is a wise and culturally proper thing to do. We do things like premarital counseling, for example, no chapter and verse on that, but it's a wise and proper thing to sit down with a pastor, sit down with a couple, have people who can talk to you and process things with you as a couple as you move towards marriage. So I think we should be heavily considering those things and not be quick to write them off. Ruth and Boaz weren't quick to discard customs in their day. They leaned into them and said, we want it to be known. We want to follow these things. And I think it would be wise for us typically to do those as well. But we definitely need to go about pursuit of marriage in ways that are biblically proper. There are things, there are guidelines that are given to us about whether and how to be married. We don't get to just self-define what marriage is and what sort of relationship we want to enter into. So I wanted to share a few things real briefly if we're going to be biblically proper about taking steps towards marriage. One, and in generations gone by, I might not have even needed to say this, but I want to say this now, is that marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. Like, we don't get to just because culture starts to define it in certain ways doesn't mean that we can walk down that path. Because we have a higher guide. We have the word of God that that speaks to us about marriage from the beginning as between a man and a woman. And so when we are going to take steps towards marriage, it always needs to be someone of the opposite sex. Like we, we don't have the liberty as believers to walk down the paths that culture has opened for us. So it needs to be proper in that sense. If you are a follower of Jesus in this room, I would also say this with the confidence of the word of God, that you should marry another Christian. Like that, that no matter how much you love a person, no matter how much you desire a person, it is always right and always best to marry someone who shares your faith in Christ. Like who, whose heart has been changed by the gospel just as yours has. And that's something that we are told in the word of God that ought to be. That we don't just get to marry whomever we want. And then the last thing I would mention is this, if we're going to be biblically proper, and there's other things, but is that we need to show, I would say this way, sexual restraint sexual holiness uh, as we approach marriage. That is such a temptation for a couple that is engaged to just think, well, marriage is coming. Uh, these benefits of intimacy are coming, so why don't we just do that now? And who's going to know? What, what's it going to hurt? But the Bible gives us clear guidelines that intimacy is reserved for a husband and a wife. And just because we're going to be husband and wife a year from now or six months from now doesn't mean that we just get to start pretending to be married before we are. Um, that, that we are called to live lives of restraint and holiness in relating to that brother or sister in the Lord as we approach marriage. And so we're to be biblically proper as we take steps towards marriage. I want to end by, as we do with every sermon, by telling what this teaches us about Jesus. Though. This is what is most important. Uh, there's something, there's been on Twitter and various places uh, the last couple of weeks, there's been a, a really strong critique of what peop- some people have come to call purity culture. Uh, it's this idea that kind of reached its peak when I was a teenager, this whole enterprise of things like true love weights and, and pledge cards we would make at youth camps to, to not have sex till we got married, things like that. There was this real push to, to be pure, to be pure, to be pure, to abstain, to abstain, to abstain. And those are good things. 
But there was a strong feel for a while, and there's still some remaining, where there was such law given, such rules given, such boundaries given, that there started to feel like there was no grace in the conversation. And so when people inevitably, not inevitably, but when some people inevitably failed, when they became impure according to the Bible and what it says, they did not feel grace and they weren't pointed towards Christ. They started to feel shame. They started to feel like, who would ever want to marry me? Like, who, who, who would want to be with me? And like, or they would think things like, I've just ruined things for my future, like things that the Lord would never want them to think. And there's this, been this strong critique, I think rightfully so, of that purity culture to say, don't throw out the morals, don't throw out the biblical guidelines and the truths that we are called to live as we approach marriage, but let's make sure we keep grace in the conversation. For those of us who have failed, those of us who do fail, those of us who will fail, let's make sure that we have grace in the conversation. And I, I mention that because this story of Ruth and Boaz, and Boaz here at this gate, and him redeeming her, him buying her back, I think as most Old Testament stories do, is supposed to point us ahead in time to Jesus. Boaz is supposed to be a picture of us, of Jesus, and how he would redeem us. How he would buy us back. How he would become our, in a real sense, our husband. How he would care for us and welcome us into his family. There's a text in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.25, where Paul wrote to this early church. He said, husbands, love your wives. So he's talking about a marriage. He says, as Christ loved the church. And then hear this. He says, and gave himself up for her. When Boaz went to this gate of Bethlehem, there was a, a worthy woman that he wanted to marry. There was someone who was known to be godly, who, who, who was known to be a potential worthy wife, even though she was a foreigner. And it was costly to Boaz. Like, he, he was taking on a field. He was taking on uh, two widows. He was taking on potential children. There was a lot of responsibilities that he was taking on to himself. But the, the buying back that Jesus did far surpasses what Boaz did. He gave himself up for us. He didn't just give money. He didn't just give some workers for a season. He didn't just give a future like inheritance and whatnot to potential heirs in the future. He gave himself up for us. And he did it properly and he did it publicly. Like, he did it when he went to the cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem, a different city. He had more than just paying a price. There, when, if he was going to buy us back and welcome us into his family, welcome us into the family of God, it wasn't just that some price needed to be paid, but punishment needed to be handed out. That was not what was, Boaz wasn't getting punishment to buy Ruth. He was paying a cost, but Jesus had to bear punishment. He took our sins, our unworthiness upon himself, and he gave himself up. He didn't just grab some nasty sandal. He let himself be killed upon a cross. He let his life be taken so that our sins might be removed from us, so that we might be forgiven of those sins and welcomed in to the family of God. 
Boaz was suffering some minimal cost to himself. Jesus was suffering something that was of infinite cost to himself. And it wasn't for worthy people. It was for sinners, like enemies, people like us who had rejected him. He said, I will not just pay a price for them. I will give my life for them. And he let himself be crucified so that we might be freed of those sins and that penalty might not be over our heads. But he did it properly. He dealt with the things, legally speaking, even that needed to be dealt with. That there was no mystery about it. He paid every ounce uh, of punishment that needed to be uh, paid. He suffered every bit of it in our place. He did it properly and he did it publicly. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but could Jesus not have potentially died somewhere else? Like, couldn't there have been an arrangement where he was kind of, of, of saved from the public ridicule of the cross? Like, couldn't God the Father have put our sins upon him somewhere in the middle of nowhere and just let him suffer and die in privacy? He could have done that, right? He could have let him be put to death that way. But he had him be put to death outside the city of Jerusalem as a public spectacle. Like hung high on the cross for onlookers to see, for the world to see. And the Romans and the Jewish leaders, they intended that for that to be a horrific thing. For that to have people see and to hear about in time as, man, we, you, you should never cross them. Like they will mess you up. They will kill you. That's what they intended it to be. But God intended it to be a public demonstration of his love for sinners like us. That when we hear about the cross, when we look back on it in time or look upon it now in our minds and think he died for us, it is a public display of the extent of his love for us. That he would die for us, that he would give his life for us, and he didn't do it in a hidden way. I think, I wonder if Ruth was in this crowd looking on, just like filled with excitement as Boaz took that sandal and maybe she's like, yes, yes, yes. Just thrill welling up in her heart. When we look at the cross as ugly and brutal as it is, our hearts ought to well up and say, yes, thank you for loving me. And thank you for telling the world, telling Satan that you love me and that you will die for me. That's what we have in the cross, is a public display of his love. It is a proper display of his love. And in doing that and dying for us, we can be welcomed into his family forever. We can be protected by him for eternity and raised up from the dead with him to live with him forever. And if you have never placed your faith in that, Jesus, I would call you to do that today. Here, I want you to turn to him and he knows your sin. He sees it. He's not just dying for worthy people. He's dying for unworthy people. And he would tell you, turn from your sin, put your faith in me, and I will receive you. I would urge you to do that.